This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson once again filling in for Dr. Matt, who will be back tomorrow. We're excited for his return and uh, eager to hear about how his Thanksgiving went down there in St. George, Utah. Uh, Anyway, this is a fantastic Tuesday morning. We've got a lot of exciting news and stories coming up this hour, uh, including uh, we're going to be having a discussion with Damian Radcliffe about whether or not local news is having a comeback. And uh, very close to our hearts here at BYU Radio, I actually... I worked up in the Pacific Northwest, which is where a lot of uh, his studies that he's going to talk about took place. Worked at a at Cairo Radio, which, I mean, radio can be very volatile. Somebody, you could have a you host there. Yeah, a host could be there one day and he could be gone the next day. So it's kind of scary, but uh, we'll have an interesting conversation with him coming up here in just a few minutes. We will also be getting some empty news. Empty for Matt Townsend news, not empty as in substance, as Dr. Matt likes to say. And also, uh, I'll be giving you a little preview of what I'll be doing tonight with my family. In fact, I'll do that right now. (laughs) So we're going to see the new film, Coco. It's been out a week already, right? And I just barely finished reading an article about how a lot of people are quite unhappy about the film. Not the film Coco, but the 21-minute short film that precedes it. Hey, I already have to sit through 20 yeah. minutes of previews for any movie that I want to see in theaters. That's and then true. they're going to tag this fun little Olaf snowman wintry adventure in front of... An already long for a Disney movie movie. Yeah, and a lot of these, a lot of these theaters will show commercials before the trailers. So you've got commercials, you've got trailers, then you've got this twenty-one minute short that a lot of people are upset about. Not only because of the length, but because it's not a Pixar short; it's a Disney short that uh, they kind of just tacked on there at the beginning. It was supposed to be a an ABC short holiday film that they were going to air on TV. But, uh, yeah, you I think you've got a theory as to why they did that, Cole. Well, it's they were really afraid that Coco wasn't going to perform well in America because mm-hmm. it's a very, very culturally Mexican film. They wanted to be really true to that culture, and it has done very well for itself down in Mexico. They were afraid that kids weren't going to want to see it, maybe. And hmm. so they, they advertise, hey, we have this Frozen thing. Come see Frozen. Kids love Frozen. Yay. Are they more worried that the kids don't want to see it or the parents don't want to see it? Because my girls, all they have to hear is movie and they're they're there. They don't they're, care what it is. No standards. There's popcorn. There's candy. There's soda. Yeah. They're there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think Disney underestimates that kids will go see anything. I'm just afraid how long we have to wait before we start seeing – little shorts before our Star Wars and our Marvel films. Anyway, Marvel Mm. already gets us to wait through the credits for the first time in movie history to see their little shorts that they tag at the end of movies. That's all those things are, really, when you think about them. Yeah. So how long before they're going to stick something in front of our movies? So we have to wait longer just to get started Mm. and then have to wait through all of our credits. 
You know, we'll have to see if it taints my experience with cocoa, if it makes me like it more or less. And uh, in the article, it did make a good point that nobody would be complaining about this. And Terry, I'm sure, would have an opinion on this. Nobody would be complaining about this if it was a 21-minute Marvel short at the beginning of this film. They might. They might. Really? People like to complain. That is true. That is true. Social media wouldn't be as popular as it is if people didn't have a, you know, didn't complain. That's what they do on there. That is that is very true. In fact, one of the tweets that I saw in this article was from somebody that said, "Just saw the short for Coco and I hated it. I told my friend to go see it so he can hate it too." <laughs> yeah. That's what people love to do. It's true. So it was supposed to be a holiday Special or Holiday, something? but also a tie-in to the sequel. It's supposed to bridge okay. the gap between the first and second Frozen films. Right. Huh. <laughs> they probably should just put it on ABC and not worried about the movie theater, but I can see why they're worried about the movie. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Sometimes it's like, just go enjoy what's there. If you don't like it, then don't go. I mean, you, yeah. you can read into things. I think a lot of this has to do with just being a consumer. And mm-hmm. not just showing up and expecting everything to be exactly the way you want it to be. Yeah, you know, look into what you're what you're buying essentially at the movie theater. You have to you people write about these things. You can go see what's in it. Mm-hmm. People show up and are shocked, like, "Oh, I can't believe that was in the movie." And like, it was, if you read a review of it, they'll tell you it's in there for the most part. You know, yeah. So you do a little work. So I don't know. Either way, it's a cartoon. Your kids are going to show. They're going to like it. Their kids aren't going to complain because they get oh, frozen. No. Yeah. It's the parents that are like, oh, why am I here to begin with? They go in with the bad attitude. Yeah. that's It's the parents' fault. There okay. And well, also, this is a Pixar movie. When's the last uh, – well, can you name more than two Pixar movies where the parents and the kids have not been equally enjoyed by them, like enjoyable from the movie? Um, they do a really great job of Cars making kids' two. movies for both kids and adults. Cars 2? More than two. Maybe Brave? Oh, definitely the good dinosaur. Don't they normally have a longer short? They call them shorts, but I mean, yeah. they're, but they're mm-hmm. not twenty-one minutes. They're maybe no. like five or six, right. right? Yeah. So one other theory. So maybe they're stretching the definition of short. Yeah, it's more Into of a long to long, right? <laughs> one other theory I had, which was pretty much immediately shot down, was maybe they're just trying to squeeze it in. So that it's eligible for the Academy Awards season, you right. know, the best short animated feature. And yet they didn't screen it for critics ahead of time, which is never a good sign. Hmm. So, yeah, I don't think you'll be taking that Oscar home, Olaf. Sorry. Anyway, we're going to uh, head over to Terry South now, who's going to give us a taste of what's going on around the rest of the country. As the Republican leadership in the Senate races to pass a sweeping tax reform bill this week, they're running into opposition from their own members. Two weeks ago, Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson came out against the bill in its present form, saying it favors large corporations over small businesses. And today, Steve Daines from Montana joined his colleague as a no vote. Senator Daines is concerned about how the tax bill looks at Main Street versus large corporations. Uh, an aide to the Montana Republican said the senator wants changes to the tax cut bill that ensure Main Street businesses are not put at a competitive disadvantage against large corporations. Both senators want the bill to do more for small businesses, which under the current plan will see a higher effective tax rate than corporations. With just 52 seats in the Senate, Republicans can't afford to lose another vote if Johnson and Danes remain 
no votes, and several other Republicans are still on the fence, as we talked about yesterday with Joe Cannon, including Bob Corker, Jeff Flake, and John McCain. They've all voiced concerns about how the bill will grow the deficit. So it's it's they're they're meeting today. They'll meet all week. They're trying to get this wrapped up rather quickly, which some people feel is too fast. They're not having enough meetings mm. to actually decide is this the right you know is this the right path forward for tax reform. Why do we have to rush this out there? And Can you imagine if this doesn't pass? This could be huge if this does oh, yeah. not pass. And I don't, well, it could be the health bill where we see it like five, six times. Right. It just keeps coming back, but then there's another problem and another problem. And so, Isn't that the way it always works, though? You, you finally get the watered-down version of whatever it is you set out to do in the first place. Right. They do have the buzz <laughs> phrase down, though. Main Street, not Wall Street. Well, they yeah. mentioned it like hmm. three times in that one short yeah. article. Main Street, Main Street, we're here well, for the little guy. The actual <laughs> term they want to use is pass-through corporations, but nobody knows what that means. It's hmm. Sort of, it's small businesses, not necessarily small business, but it's in that realm of small business. Okay. You know what I mean? So that, that's why it's confusing. So they say Main Street so they instead of Wall Street. Down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you, you have to give a buzz phrase. President Trump on Monday once again poked fun at Senator Elizabeth Warren, calling her Pocahontas this mm. time during an event honoring Native American veterans. You are very, very special people. You were here long before any of us were, Trump told a group of Native American veterans while standing in front of a portrait of President Andrew Jackson, who famously signed legislation forming Native Americans or forcing Native Americans off their land. So this mm. is, he did it in that room in front of that picture. Great choice. It was in his office. He has it in there. Um, he goes, other, although we have a representative in Congress, she's in the Senate, who said uh, she was here a long time ago, they call her Pocahontas. So Native American groups have come out saying this is a racial slur. The White House says they're just drawing attention to the fact that she drew on a Native American past that has since proved non-existent, but she was drawing upon stories that her mother and grandmother told her. She never mm. actually, like, did the genealogy because, I mean, I don't know. It, it's Still, all, why can't you, why it's can't you go bad. get through a ceremony honoring somebody without yeah. taking a jab at somebody yeah, else? Native American code talkers from World War II. Which is awesome. Which awesome, is, by the if way. If you looked into that story, it's, it's so cool. It's amazing. But they're standing there, and he's like, you know, we call her Pocahontas. And there was no reaction from the men standing there. They just oh, kind of were like, no. can we get on with this? And then. And he says, we, when really it's I. Well, he says, they call her. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I called you her. <laughs> called her, is what I, you know. So yeah. this whole thing is just, <sighs> it's, it's another distraction. And uh, she responded by saying, this is ridiculous. What's he doing? Why does he keep doing this? It didn't work before. Why, is he gonna, why does he think right. it's going to work now? And I don't know. Um, uh, the story that I'm most intrigued by, the Office of Management and Budget Director Mick Mulvaney took over Monday as the acting head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, an agency he once called a sick joke. Mulvaney says mm. he wants the CFPB to protect people without trampling capitalism and announced a 30-day freeze on any new regulation, rules, and guidance. He also told reporters Monday that elections have consequences at every agency and warned that anyone expecting the CFPB to operate on, under the Trump administration as it did under the Obama administration is, is simply naive. Mulvaney, of course, isn't the only person who claims to be the acting director of the CFPB. Outgoing CFPB head Richard Cor, uh, Cor, 
Corderay, there you go, an Obama appointee had tapped Landra English as his successor. President Trump countered by appointing Mulvaney. Sunday night, English filed a lawsuit claiming that the president did not have the authority to appoint Mulvaney when the... But he con- does, though, right? Mm, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, when it was formed, they wanted it to be independent of politics. Mm-hmm. So what they, in the... Uh, in the uh, guidelines, bylaws, everything that set it up, there is a, a clause that says that the director can appoint his successor in the sense of a temporary person in that job to, to run the, 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 uh, the, the, the division mm-hmm. until Congress, until the White House appoints somebody and Congress can vet that person. Okay. So it's this, it's this idea you have the interim, right? Mm-hmm. So that the White House can appoint their guy and then that person is vetted before that person takes over. Right. The White House says we can just put somebody in there until we actually appoint somebody, but they're not going to appoint anybody. They're just going to let this guy be the temporary guy and he'll just run it. But I thought Trump was all for extreme vetting. Of certain situations, <laughs> yes. So, and, and there is an act that says that, that, that the, the president, when it comes to a federal agency, can appoint an interim leader of that agency. Hmm. But in that, there's a clause in that from the executive that says unless there is a provision provided within the law which there is yeah. that there is another way to you know to appoint a leader and so that's where the legal conflict is and this will end up in court as the white house says oh. we can do it and as the agency says we already did we what, already did appoint somebody what's the lawsuit count currently with I, president trump <laughs> i don't know what's funny is both these uh, the this Laura english and then mulvaney is they both showed it to work yesterday put out memos telling the staff to do different things yeah don't you know like they're like ignore that person don't listen to what they're saying this is what we're doing and then the other one puts out the same thing and so everyone in the office is like what are we supposed to be doing here so. did you get that memo yeah yeah now, now, as he says, election do have consequences. They they will appoint somebody, and then they have to go through a vetting through the Senate as they you know look at this person. Are they the right person for the job? Right. And mm. they they already have the the rules and bylaws set up. So I don't know where this is going to end up. But it's interesting that they have two bosses, and one of them showed up at donuts yesterday and said, "Hey, come on by and get the you know." Well, I'm I'm sold. Just give Donuts? me a donut. Donut yeah. your set. All right. Cyber Monday was yesterday. Sales uh, were on pace to hit $6.5 billion by the end of the day. Uh, the set of uh, Adobe Insights, they track online sales and mm-hmm. look at those kind of things. The projection would represent an increase of 16% from last year, uh, a record $5.3 billion spent during Black Friday, an increase of 17% when compared with last year. Top selling items, what do you think? Oh, it's got to be something electronic. Okay. Maybe like a TV. Nope. Uh, a, a gaming system. Yep. Okay. Ooh, ooh, ooh. The, uh, I don't know any Hot of the- Hot cold. Hot cold. I don't know any of the new gaming- And Xbox- you have three to pick from. Xbox. No. PlayStation. No. Uh, what else and is there? what's the other one? <laughs> Nintendo Click. No. Close. <laughs> that's not the name of it, but Nintendo Switch. Switch. That's there the uh, Hatchimals. <laughs> LOL Surprise. And then it says ride-on cars. So I'm not sure if those are like power wheels or how those work. But a ride-on Maybe the car. battery-operated cars. Right. Ooh, the, that you can actually ride in. Yeah. The strongest surge in purchases was between 11 p.m. or 8 p.m. and 11 p.m. in every time zone. When deliberating shoppers finally commit to what they've been loading into their online shopping carts all day long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they call the period from Thanksgiving to Monday the Turkey Five. That's what marketing professionals call oh, it. Oh, wow. 
Mm-hmm. The five shopping days start on Thanksgiving, continued through Cyber Monday. So there's some facts there. Turkey five. Small business that. Saturday is yeah, in there. That was in the middle of I had of all a couple that. of items in Today my. Today is Giving Tuesday. That's right. Yeah. You're supposed to like donate to. Now that you've 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 had all this excess of just online spending like crazy, now you gotta you know balance the karma, I guess, and like Aww. give give to your your favorite charity or something. Just today. give away all the stuff that you bought, right? That's nice. I had a couple of things in my shopping cart that I just waited too long, and so now the prices are much higher than they were. I keep getting alerts that the stuff that's in our shopping cart keeps dropping. Really? Yeah. yeah. I was looking at my Walmart ad last night at around eleven o'clock when I was deliberating. Right. That said. Welcome to Cyber Week. And so I thought, oh, man, yeah. Yeah. I can wait longer. That's what I, I mean is, is the sales will just keep going all the way. And then like you get your final Black Friday right before Christmas. Yeah. And- so they keep elongating these these great deals online. Should this – I mean don't you think we should do this in other areas of our lives? Like can't, can't we have like a birthday week instead of just a birthday no. day? That annoys everyone around you. Well, oh, you don't have some to people make a do big try. You don't have to make a big stink about <laughs> but it. But people you know? would though. Hmm. You know, especially when you're self-celebrating. Okay. But if you came into work and somebody was having cake for their birthday every day that week, would yeah. you really complain if you were a cake person? It, if except the cake, ca- the cake you get at work is never good. It's always like this: the generic white cheat cake stuff you get from the grocery store. Oh, but I love kind that. Of gross. <laughs> I love it's the just sh- the more sugary the better than cake. Yeah, yes, it's gross. Huh? If they if they put some effort into it and got an actual cake, sure. So for okay. Terry's birthday, we'll get one of those cakes. Well, he and just had we'll his. Eat it well, all. I did, and like I was told, the, I told the story. HR brings balloons to your desk. Oh, I didn't I, get balloons. I know. I said, well, I don't know if you actually have, a, or if they know where your desk is. And so I like, because <laughs> you keep moving. Yeah. I, I ran out there and just kept looking during the show, and I said, oh, the balloon showed up, and I went over there with a pencil and just jammed all the, you know, popped them all Whoa. through. I got rid of them. I didn't want anyone knowing because then people would make a, a deal, make a, make an issue about See, it. See, I'm surprised you don't have a strategy like mine. I don't purposely float around at different desks, but that seems like the perfect strategy for you. Well, seeing as I part-time have a desk, so. Hmm. Yeah. You could have sh- just have said the other person that has your desk was actually the one with the birthday. No, they. Yeah. she already had hers, but she left her balloons up all week. She was happy to get all the attention me i just would rather not deal with it so hmm die balloons and i you know took care yeah of them. we had to uh, put our best reporters and researchers on on the case to, of when your birthday was no someone came in after the show and said happy birthday and you oh. both went oh we missed it <laughs> oh goodness all right well i know what i'm getting uh, terry for his next birthday a big old cubicle full of balloons Spoiler alert. When we return, we're going to be speaking with Damian Radcliffe, who's going to be talking to us about local news. And is it having a comeback? We'll find out when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Don't call it a comeback. Financial problems, criticism from the White House, and lower job availability has left journalists with nothing more than a stronger resolve to do their chosen vocation. However, although both national and local journalism are facing the same problems, local news might be on the very verge of a renaissance. 
Here to speak with us today is Damian Radcliffe, a professor of journalism at the University of Oregon. Damian, uh, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. So I was excited when I read a little bit uh, your article as well as your, your bio. I actually worked at a local radio news station in uh, Seattle. I worked at Cairo Radio. Fantastic. That's great. Yeah. All the best people, all the best people start their careers in radio. Well, thank you. <laughs> so I'm really interested to hear more about this article that, that you wrote, Is Local News on the Cusp of a Renaissance? So talk to us a little bit about some of the problems that both local and national news organizations face today. Sure. So this article was really an attempt to sum up three major pieces of research that I've published over the course of the past six months, a couple of them in partnership with my friend and co-researcher, Dr. Christopher Alley at the University of Virginia. And we were really keen to try and get an understanding of what was happening in local newsrooms and across local media uh, across the U.S. because we felt that a lot of the conversation about what's happening in media tends to focus on the bigger players like the New York Times, the Washington Post, or the kind of new digital poster boys like BuzzFeed and Vice. And yet we know that local media and local news is incredibly important. Um, you know, in the U.S. alone, there are around about seven, just over 7,000 uh, daily and weekly newspapers, of which 97% are local. Uh, so, you know, that's a huge market. Yeah. There are many, yeah, there, there are many journalists still working in, in this space, uh, but it's one that is being really challenging. Um, over the course of the last two decades, about 20,000 jobs have gone, so almost half the jobs in newsrooms at local, regional, and national newspapers um, have gone. Uh, those that are still around are facing quite a tough economic backdrop and, and climate. You know, their business model and revenue models have changed. A lot of the money, a lot of the advertising that they used to enjoy has now flowed to platforms like Google and Facebook and Yelp and Craigslist and so on. Um, and of course, as you, as you said right at the top, uh, we're also in an environment where journalists at all levels are increasingly facing hostility from politicians and in some cases, members of the public. Uh, like the label fake news, for example, is not just being thrown at the sort of CNN and NBCs and MSNBCs of this world, but increasingly local journalists are also telling us they're hearing this message as well. And I think that's a really... Uh, worrying trend for democracy, but equally at the same time, I feel that local journalists are in a strong position to, to push back about that. And I'm sure that's something we'll talk about over the next few minutes. Yeah. So what are some of the numbers? I, I see here that, uh, you know, the number of jobs that have been lost since 2000 is just staggering. And why, why are we seeing that? Well, what we're seeing is a cutting of jobs kind of year on year. And I think what's, what's, striking about that is that any one year would be a bad year if you're losing a couple of thousand jobs in, in newsrooms across the U.S. And then when you're seeing that year on year, it makes for uh, a very different different industry where some of the some of the prospects are fewer uh, than, than, they, than they once were. And I think really the, the big reason for that is because the way that traditionally journalism was funded was through advertising. And a lot of the kinds of advertising, you know, uh, job ads, real estate, cars, all those kinds of things, they've, they've all moved online. Uh, at the same time, we now have access to more information through digital channels, uh, be that um, online or through cable, through Syria, and uh, a whole range of other different 
we have access to more information than ever. So, so news in the way that it used to be delivered is no longer scarce, and, and people are not necessarily willing to pay for it. So, you know, that's 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 a really big challenge for many news organisations that they need to be offering something unique and valuable and that's not replicated elsewhere. Because if you're not doing that, why should people pay for your product? Right. So let's talk more about that. What are what are some solutions that they're coming up with to offer a unique product and to do it in a unique way to get more listeners or to get more readers? Yeah. So I mean, I think that really is absolutely fundamental that, that for local journalism to be successful moving forward, it has to be offering something that nobody else is is providing. That for me is fundamental to the success of this sector um, moving forward. And Journalists, I think, are starting to recognize and understand that. And one of the ways in which they are embracing that has been through the facilitation of events and creating opportunities for more face-to-face engagement, for real-life engagement, and recognizing that the proximity that local journalists have to the community that they're reporting on is a really unique asset that is very hard to replicate if you're at a regional publication or you're at a national publication. You know, you are on the ground living amongst the community that you are reporting from and that you are reporting to. You will bump into people at the grocery store, the coffee shop, the school gates, and so forth. And this gives you a tremendous opportunity to gain not only an insight into the lives of your audience and the issues that matter to them, but also for you to communicate about the work that you are doing, about the processes that you go through as a journalist, how you tell stories, how you determine what matters. And so through doing that, there's an opportunity to be just so much more visible at a local level than there is elsewhere. And that's one of the ways in which uh, journalists are trying at a local level to turn the tanker around a little bit. Yeah. You know, another thing that you mentioned here in your in your article is, it's kind of sad, uh, there was a, a career cast uh, survey that named a newspaper reporter as the worst of 200 jobs in 2016 for the third consecutive year. And, you know, yeah. just to just to give some perspective that you also mentioned in your article here that pest control worker and meter reader came in at 195 and 190. Yeah. That is... And I think broadcast journalist was like one one rung higher than newspaper journalist. Wow. So, yeah. 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 And, and I, there might be a perception for a lot of people that these are kind of glamorous careers and professions. And clearly that, that, that's not the case. And one of the reasons why journalism uh, was ranked so low was because of because of the instability, you know, we talked earlier about the levels of cuts, the volume of jobs that have that have been lost. You know, that's clearly an issue. There's a lot of instability in this sector, and for people starting out, that's understandably making a lot of them question whether this is the right profession to to move into, or whether they should take their interest in media and communications and perhaps parlay that into uh, other areas like advertising or PR and kind of like corporate communications, other places where you might be able to use some of those skills, but then equally we're finding, and I see this with my students on a day-to-day basis, that actually a lot of them are increasingly, particularly in the, in the current climate, really kind of doubling down on this sense of vocation, the importance of, of journalism, but they recognize that it's a bumpy road. There's not necessarily the kind of stability that we once used to see in, the, in, in this sector. Um, and equally, and uh, I think this is one, another one of the reasons why journalism ranks so you know, pay is often a big challenge, particularly for many uh, younger journalists. And so this came out separately through 
some survey work uh, that I did where we found that you know, a number of journalists are often holding down a second or, or third job in order to make ends meet just a day job doesn't necessarily uh, give them uh, enough money to live. And, you know, that's clearly a challenge, but also that is not necessarily a sentiment that is just unique to journalism. There are many people in many jobs uh, for whom, you know, life is hard and tough and where they're having to, to do a number of different things to make ends meet. Yeah. Uh, Damien, so this, this survey that you mentioned here, is this coming from the perspective of people, what people are saying about that profession, or is it people in these professions that are saying they're the worst? So it's people, oh, that's a good question. Uh, that particular survey, the career class one that you mentioned, I'm not quite sure what the, the process is for that. I think that's them determining uh, based on their own, their own system what they think is the worst. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see because you mentioned that a lot of people think that being a reporter, whether it's you know at a newspaper or a broadcast journalist, that that it's just this glamorous job. And I think in a lot of ways, there's there are some misconceptions that people have about these careers. And unfortunately, I think I think a lot of people just turn on the news and they kind of roll their eyes. All right, let me hear about everything that's wrong that's going on today. And for a lot of stations, that seems to be the case. You you hear story after story after story that's just bad news. And so I, I was wondering if you could give us an example. I, I know that in your article here, you mention uh, an example that happened in Bell, California, where a, a local, well, actually it was the L.A. Times, that made a real difference by by outlining some corruption that was going on. Yeah, so this is probably the, the, the most famous case of what happens when local journalism and news media disappears, and you have the creation of these areas that, uh, called media deserts. They're areas where there is no access to fresh news and information, and without journalists on the ground doing the things that they do really well, important watchdog reporting, reflecting the lives of communities, listening to them, understanding what matters to them, and, and exploring and investigating that. Um, there, are, there are risks, and, you know, and there are a number of different risks, including the uh, lack of access to important news and information, and the possibility that uh, businesses and public officials are not necessarily held to account in the way that they, they should be. And in Bell, California, that's exactly uh, what we saw. There were a number of public officials there who were, let's just say, earning a lot more money than they should have been, given the uh, the size of the town and the jobs that they were doing, and certainly uh, relative to other people doing those, those jobs in other towns. Um, and uh, as a result of an investigation by the LA Times, a newspaper which covers an enormous patch, you know, there are many, many counties and towns and cities uh, within their area, um, it was found that there had been various elements of of wrongdoing, and a number of those officials uh, ended up going to jail as a result of that, of that reporting. So you know, that's an example of where of two things really. I mean, one where where local journalism and local reporting can still make a difference, uh, and you know, does a really important job in terms of being the traditional source of state and holding authority to account, but at the same time uh, also reflects. You know, these are some of the situations that can potentially arise when there aren't journalists keeping an eye out on what's going on and representing the interests of, of the public through their reporting. That's huge. Now, That's wonderful. 
Now, the flip side, yeah, it is, and and and, and I should we should say you know that kind of reporting and that kind of, of watchdog reporting and really important journalism is happening every day across um, small newspapers uh, all across the United States. And even though they've been going through a very tough economic climate uh, and that the economics for the sector is still challenging moving forward, that kind of journalism remains incredibly important. It's a really fundamental reason why many people become journalists in the first place. And it's still such a key part of the journalistic psyche and toolkit that people are focused on, on producing that kind of journalism that really matters. But so, the other, uh, and I just want to say a little bit about the positives, if I, if, if I may. I mean, you yeah. mentioned that, that, that people might tune in uh, or uh, uh, open a web browser and look at, look at a paper and think you know, everything is all, all negative. And that's another way in which local newspapers are trying to push back a little bit against that, that narrative. So we're starting to see the emergence of this philosophy called solutions journalism, um, which is something we teach at the University of Oregon, and there are various different organizations across the U.S. and indeed around the world that are trying to embrace this concept, which really looks at uh, at trying to shine a light on what's working just as much as the stuff that's not working. And so um, by giving giving airtime to solutions that people are are trying out uh, in different communities by telling the story of uh, successes, uh, successes we may have, you know, bumps along the road, as well as talking about things that aren't working and talking about about problems. You can have a more nuanced conversation about what's what's going on in your community, and you can perhaps um, start to also turn around the perception that journalism is all about painting a a negative view of a community, because it's absolutely not, and particularly at a a local level, where you need that mixture of interrogation and and watchdog reporting, but you also need uh, softer stories, you need to kind of understand more about, uh, about all different aspects of what's happening in your community. And alongside that, you also need to, to shine a light on the stuff that's working in your community just as much as the stuff that's not. Again, we're speaking with uh, Damian Radcliffe, and uh, he is the, uh, a professor of journalism at the University of Oregon. We're talking about local news. And Damien, you bring up a good point. You know, it's it's not all just this terrible picture that we're trying to paint. In fact, on our show, we end every show uh, that we do with a hero story of the day, because we do like to to put a spotlight on, on something that's good and, and to give people an example of something that they can do to be a hero in their everyday lives. Um, you, you mentioned a little bit about what journalists are doing to experiment with some of their practices. What about uh, with their financial, their, their revenue models? What are they doing to kind of to change things up that way to, to get more money? Yeah, well, I mentioned that that's a good question. So, and that's absolutely fundamental because you can produce all the great journalism in the world. You can be as connected as you want to your community. But if you are not bringing in the dollars and you don't have a kind of solid financial base, you're going to go under. So there's, there's understandably a lot of experimentation taking place in the, in the revenue arena. Uh, one of the things that we've seen just over the last four or five years, and it's kind of easy to forget that it's actually so new, is the, the rollout of paywalls at many newspapers if you're trying to look at their at their website in most cases there's a certain uh, limit on the number of articles you can access for free then you have to subscribe um, after that um, I mentioned about kind of real life engagement and opportunities to 
to meet with people face-to-face. So a lot of news organizations have taken that principle and are turning it into the creation of, uh, of events on specific topics. Um, so, so that might be education or sport, or it might be a whole series of different award shows from best young teacher to uh, best student athlete, a whole range of kind of events like that where you can sell tickets, you can sell sponsorship, but it also creates opportunities for you to tell stories, for you to connect with your audience, and for you also to reflect uh, what's going on in the community and you know, help to celebrate some of the successes that are, that are happening in that space. So those are some of the things that we're, we're seeing. And alongside that, uh, a lot of organizations are also recognizing they have very transferable skills and the kinds of things that journalists do day-to-day, you know, writing great copy, great stories, uh, producing content for websites and apps and social media, or people who are working in that, that newsroom who are designing those websites and apps and so forth, you can potentially spin that off. And you could do that for local organizations in your community who perhaps need help with uh, getting online or enhancing their digital presence. And because newspapers have often been around and been in the community for a long time, they have a brand and a heritage and a reputation uh, that perhaps they can leverage in that space. So, you know, if you're a small local business and you're trying to make sense of how I do things on Facebook and what I can do with my website, uh, if the local paper comes and knocks on your door and says, hey, we can help you do this, because you know them and you trust them, you may be more inclined to go with them and their spin-off business rather than uh, you know, a small local startup that you, you haven't heard of. Um, and you know, both of those organizations can, can bring something to support that, that small business. Uh, but the reputation and the brand and the heritage that the newspaper has might give them a, a bit of a, a forward, uh, forward start. Damien, just in closing here, what do you think journalism is going to look like in the next five years, ten years? Are we going to see this uh, this job jump up a little higher on the two hundred worst jobs? What is it? What's it going to look like in five to ten years? Well, I hope so because you know I I actually think there's never been a better time to be a journalist. Um, we have access to more platforms and more means to tell stories than, than ever before. It's never been so easy to produce great photographs, to tell videos, to create audio and podcasts, or to be able to take stories and distribute them on different platforms, from Facebook to Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, and so forth. And I think you know, if you're a storyteller, you should be excited about those opportunities to be able to uh, tell stories in different ways, to be able to interact with your audience in a way that has never uh, never been possible before, where that kind of distance, both physically and digitally, between journalists and their audience, uh, is is decreasing. And I think that's incredibly uh, exciting. And at the same time, you know, we're also seeing huge amounts of really important journalism happening, both you know, at the local level and then nationally, from organisations like the Washington Post, New York Times, Mother Jones, and others that are really inspirational for uh, for journalists. So in, in terms of the future, and I think all the trends that we have seen over the last few years are not necessarily going to change any time fast. Economically, it's going to be tough um, for the sector. Organizations are going to have to continue to diversify their revenue base, find new ways of securing income to uh, create a strong financial foundation uh, for the future. Um, Yet at the same time, all the digital opportunities, the ways to engage and experiment with 
uh, storytelling and interaction with, with audiences, that stuff is only going to continue. And uh, as journalists and as consumers, you know, I, I think we should be excited about those possibilities. And it's, it's that opportunity to, to reinvent and continually kind of reinvent what journalism is and why it matters and how we can tell important stories. I think those are some of the reasons why we can say, you know, this is a sector that is reinventing and reinvigorating itself has plenty of life left in here. Well, Damien, thank you so much for your time here on the Matt Townsend Show this morning. His name is Damien Radcliffe, and he is the Carolyn S. Chambers Professor in Journalism at the University of Oregon, a fellow of the Toe Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia University, an honorary research fellow at Cardiff University School of Journalism, Media, and Cultural Studies, and a fellow of the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures, and Commerce, the RSA. Don't call it a comeback, folks. Local news, it's been here for years. So have we. And uh, we're going to return and uh, continue the discussion, hopefully for several more years to come, here on the Matt Townsend Show. the Matt Townsend Show. We just finished uh, speaking with Damian Radcliffe about the comeback of local news. And speaking of local news, we've got our local news producer, Terry South, here to tell us about a Supreme Court case that's going on. Now, this will affect every person with a cell phone. So everyone, really. (laughs) Pretty much. Uh, Supreme Court will hear arguments Wednesday on a case addressing whether law enforcement should be required to obtain a warrant before accessing cell tower data which can include location information relevant to a criminal investigation. Hmm. So right now, your phone is transmitting information. It it connects to cell towers so that it can have, you know, it, it works, right? So you make a phone call, you send a text, it has to be connected. And um, when it does that, it's sending out location information and also other data from your phone. And the police at the moment don't need a warrant to get that information. Really? They just go get it from the cell because the, you're freely giving that to your cell phone company, that's right? That's true, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, if they need to get into your phone, there's other legal ramifications there. With, sure. You know, either you have a fingerprint or, a, you know, just, can they get a warrant and force you to do things? Those are other legal arguments. But with the cell tower data, they can just go get it. Mm. They just go to they, – they, they, they show up to the phone company. They have probably have some agreement, and they can just get that information. Well, this case – the case in question is an appeal brought by a man named Timothy Carpenter who was serving a lengthy sentence for multiple armed robberies. Prosecutors obtained Carpenter's conviction in part by using cell tower data to place his smartphone near Radio Shack and T-Mobile stores at the time of the robberies. Him and some friends were breaking in and stealing iPhones. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, like, they – like eight stores or something it was a uh, just it was a, wow. a, a a spree of robberies but in doing so the records uh showed that he was near these different locations that were hit and they were able to show that he was in fact involved the records were reviewed without a warrant and covered 127 days of carpenter's movements including activities unrelated to the crimes because they got the entire record for 127 days 
Wow. If that were me, the police would know so much more about what what I had done over the last 127 days than what I could remember. Absolutely. I can't remember what I did seven days ago. So then the question is, should they get a warrant to know that mm. much information about your personal movements? Gosh, that's a tough one. Or should they be able to, I guess, have at their own discretion, be able to get that information and use it? how they that's the problem that's why it's like is do you need a warrant they can't walk into your home right right they can't walk in and look at your personal computer but they're able to get all this information off a device that's right on your hip at any moment and look at your last three four months it's a tough one because i mean the same laws that protect the innocent also sometimes seem to protect those who are not so innocent right so it said the Trump administration, as well as 19 states, want the court to maintain the status quo, arguing that tower data should not be covered by the Fourth Amendment's privacy protections, but rather treated like call records from a landline. Privacy advocates note that the data obtained from cell tower, like the phone's movement, is far more significant than a simple list of numbers dialed. See, that's kind of a good argument, I think. I don't know. See, if you dig into your phone, you'll find that your it has maps of places you frequent yeah and there's a feature on my phone that it'll tell me about 15 minutes before i go to a place that i go two to three times a week what the traffic is sure just on i'm not looking for it it just pops up as a notification and says traffic is light on your way here wait a second i didn't put that's not on a calendar entry right it's not anywhere i just go there like monday wednesday friday but it's useful. No, it's useful, right? But it's like it's it's also like kind of that. it's also kind of creepy that your phone is like predicting your behavior, but it's behavior you've done over a pattern of weeks. It sees okay on mm. Wednesdays at this time you do this. It knows when I'm going about the time I go home from work and tells me what the traffic is. Wow, the traffic is light on the way home. Well, of course, it is middle of the afternoon. But it's scary. It's like every day, and if you dig in, you can turn those features off. But there's I looked in, and there's like 15 maps on my phone. Of places I frequent often. Mm. So, so uh, that information is more than just I called this person at five o'clock. So if you're going to do something illegal, well, I guess it doesn't matter if you get rid of your phone because there's a record of, record of it somewhere else. Oh, yeah. So this mm. that's the privacy question that they're going to be dealing with in the uh, the Supreme Court coming up on Wednesday. Wow. And it has to do with some numbskull who broke into a Radio Shack and stole iPhones. <laughs> Breaking news, Radio Shack is still open. I thought they went bankrupt hey, and closed. Yeah, I don't know should, how this works anymore. That should have been the headline. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, let's do this. Let's uh, let's take a break. And I'm curious to know how that all pans out, Terry. You'll have to keep us updated on that. When we return, I've got a little question that I need some help with here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. So, Cole, I'm going to need your help with something because, as you know, the holiday season is upon us. and That's what I'm here for. All this talk of records being left behind, of places you've been and, you know, things that you've done. It's kind of, it's kind of worrisome because what do you do when, let's just say, there's a website that uh, you and your wife shop uh, on frequently? Okay. Okay? And you're trying to buy gifts for each other. You've got the one account, 
You can see what the shopping history is. You can check the orders to see when those orders are going to arrive. How do you keep these gifts a secret from each other? What do you do? So this this problem has actually been brought up in more extensive than having the same account, because if even if you share a computer with your person that you're going to buy Christmas gifts for, even if you visited and then not bought anything, not added it to your cart at all, it'll start showing up in your Facebook feed as an ad. It'll start showing up on the sides of other. That's a good point. So. Whether you've purchased it or not. Whether you've purchased yeah. it. Whether you delete your browsing history or not. It's it's in there. Right? Yeah. Um, so I would suggest buying a new computer for yourself <laughs> on Cyber Week and using it to buy other things for your wife. Okay. You know, something my wife and I are doing, we are kind of – we're sending texts to each other saying, do not look – at this particular order, which is also frustrating because she just bought something yesterday and the default email that it goes to when you've purchased something is my work email. There so I go. was able to see that she ordered something. She's like, just don't scroll down to the bottom of the order. So the the simpler solution probably is to just use a different like account. You have you probably have but at least a hundred or a hundred and one email accounts, right? But it costs more money. Is the problem. Like if you're both – because let's say you have to pay a subscription to buy things through on this website to get the faster shipping. The the one website that does that. I think right. I'm with you. <laughs> uh, you have to pay uh, like 100 bucks per account. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to pay $100 more just to keep it a secret. I guess that's true. By the way, my wife says it's OK to lie if you are uh, surprising somebody. You know, like if you're getting something for them for their birthday or for Christmas, gotcha. then it's okay to lie. Okay. And as long as you're in on the lie. We always just – in my house, we'd always just say, no questions around Christmas time. That's what we would say. But this is a problem in our new digital age. How do you keep secrets that are fun secrets? I guess pay with cash at a brick-and-mortar store. Yes. No paper trail. <laughs> That's the way to do it. If only my wife wasn't an accountant and couldn't see every financial move that I made, then it would be a lot easier to get her a Christmas gift. Anyway, just some ideas for how you can keep your Christmas gifts a secret from your significant other or your kids. When we return, uh, the BBC News will be on and then we'll continue the fun here on The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We've got Jeff Simpson here. I'd never refer to myself in the third person, but I just did. We've got Terry South here, our wonderful producer, as well as Cole Wissinger. And uh, we just... Finish talking about how do you get away with purchasing a gift for your significant other or somebody in your family without them finding out about it. And it's really kind of scary, all the stuff that shows up online, whether or not you've made a purchase or not. Uh, that was redundant. But whether or not you've made a purchase where you'll get these banner ads that that really don't have anything to do with something that you purchased and maybe somebody thinks that you're looking at that that's maybe inappropriate when you were just innocently looking for a calendar online. Right. It's scary. 
Then, then just being the holidays, and if you have a shared online account somewhere. Exactly. And like in my wife's case, she'll buy something at this at whatever retailer, and then because it's through my email, mm-hmm. it kicks back to me, and then I get a text saying, don't look at that email. We, this, this is just yeah. what we said. This is the exact same thing that happened between my wife and me yesterday. She sent me that same text. Don't look at this. So I had her open up my email and delete that email. Really? But of course, I'll get another email when the item ships. You can't. So. You can't just open and close it without looking at it. Well, you can't, you're I, I tempted just, to go back and look at it. I, I told Cole it's been years since I've been surprised by a gift, mm. just because of all this these online problems. I, I know what I'm getting for every Christmas, right. every birthday. Well, I kind of know because I tell everyone this is what I want, and then they go get what I want. Well, that too. And I only, I only you know, <laughs> it's it's realistic. It's only a couple items, so. They always show up. So maybe maybe this tactic that places like Walmart and, and uh, Best Buy are using to get people in the store instead mm. of shopping online, maybe that's for me. Maybe. Maybe just go. But then, of course, my wife's the accountant. She does the finances. She can tell when I've spent $20 at Best Buy or $20 at Walmart. So there's no way to win. You just can't win. Right. So unless unless I open up some sort of secret account, which have would you, not go over well. Have you either stumbled into or purposely looked for and ruined your Christmas surprise? When I was, uh, let's see, maybe 10 years old, All right. there was a board game. You may remember this board game. It was called Splat. I believe so. Now, the way that Splat works is you have these uh, clay bugs, and if you land on a certain area of the board, I think it's a Splat area, you take this little stamp and you crush you mash the bug, the bug yeah. and it says splat on it i wanted it so bad i doubt i don't even think this has long been out of print or out of existence Production, but, yeah. yeah and i just randomly decided one day this is for christmas mm-hmm. uh i'm gonna look under my parents bed i don't know why i there you probably had similar curiosities when you were a right. kid like what's under my parents bed right so i looked under there and there it was and my dad was furious that I had ruined this surprise. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I have i don't know that I was purposely looking for it, but I found it. There have been other times when maybe the my curiosity has gotten the better of me, but generally I do like to be surprised. When I was a kid one year, my, I had a cousin send us a present, and there was just like three of them for just the, me, my brother, and my sister, I yeah. believe. And mine was sitting there, and it, it came like early in December. So the tree goes up. This is under the tree and it was there for weeks. So every day I'd walk through and you just look down and see this present. And it was a book. You could see ah, it was a book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ah. and it was just bugging me. I need to see what that is. And I go, it's so easy. I just peel the tape back. <gasps> you could just take a look. No problem. No. Cover it with no harm, no foul. No one's going to know. And so I did that. And I it was like kidnapped by Hans Christian. I don't know who wrote it, but you know. So you're Oh, watching, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson. There you go. Robert yeah. Louis Stevenson. It's a good book. I, it was. I read the book. Yeah. It was great. But um, I opened I and I saw that and it kind of ruined it for me because yep. on Christmas Day, it was the last thing to open because it's the first thing in, right? So as you're peeling everything out from under the tree on Christmas Day, it's the last thing out. 
when we got there, everyone else had that 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 kind of wonderment of, oh, what's in the present? Me, I'm like, oh, I already know. So it just kind of Christmas was ruined at that point. Did for you me. at least try to act surprised? No, I was probably just like oh, disappointed. You scallywag! See, I would never do that. Yeah. That was me. My parents always filmed Christmas. Oh and, yeah. Oh, because you're an only child. Because and it's a big I'm deal. an only child. Christmas was a big deal, and I, from the time I was probably eleven or twelve, I, I had pretty much known what I was going to get for Christmas. I had a pretty detailed and realistic Christmas list. And also, my parents were never big on telling me that Santa Claus was real, so I never had that kind of wonderment going for me either. And yeah. so, But I would feign the best kind of excitement <laughs> every year for that camera, which I don't know why, because the only people that would go back and watch that are the people mm-hmm. that were involved in it anyway, Yeah, that knew that it was also not <laughs> the truest kind of... <laughs> Happiness? Amusement yeah. or happiness? I mean, I would see this. I would see this DVD-looking thing, uh, box, and I knew it was a video game, and I knew which video game it was because it was the only thing I asked for. But every year, I'd pull it out and say, "Ooh, what's this video game or DVD or something in this yeah. mysterious shaped?" No, I I knew that it was Mario Kart Double Dash. I'd asked for it for the past six months, and it was well, the only thing you. that I asked for. You're such a good son. Now, I want to I want to highlight something here. I don't think that if I ever got a video game, it was never in a DVD case. So that kind of just gives you an idea of the semi-generational gap that we've got going those, on here in the those show. Those Super NES boxes were much yeah. more ambiguously <laughs> shaped boxes. Yeah. That's true. Wow. You know, there was one year, too, where I certainly was not even trying to indulge my curiosity by just saying, I wonder what's out here. All I did was go out to the garage, right? It's yeah. kind of an everyday occurrence. And uh, there was – I looked behind – I noticed behind my parents' car there was this bulge with a tablecloth over it. And the tablecloth didn't even entirely cover the bulge. And sure enough, it was a new bike that they had gotten <gasps> So, whoops. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I won't I won't even look anymore. So we were talking about those notifications from like an online purchase. Yeah. I, they come in, I just tap and move on. I open it so it's it's out of my, you know, it's not registering as a new email, but I just move on. Don't even look at it. Because that experience as a kid, it ruined it and I realize Christmas is more fun if you just let it happen and try not right. to, you know, guess out oh, guess yeah. your parents or whoever. And just it just ruined it. So that experience, that one book, I just will not – I remember that always. We'll never look at a, a gift or something. If I stumble into something, I, I look away real quick, make sure I didn't see anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. I purposely try to stay away from it just to kind of preserve that moment. Oh, yeah. The oh. most surprised I ever was was when my parents got me a new bike. And it's because I did not ask for a new bike. And I never learned how to ride said bike. And I never wanted wow. a bike. I, come to think <laughs> but of I was it, surprised when I got a bike. Come to think of it, I don't think I asked for that bike either. It was a good bike, though. Yeah, I guess the, the lesson we've learned here is maybe just get some type of a sentimental gift where there can absolutely be no paper trail involved. Mm. That's the only way to but, surprise but, someone. Then you have to go to a store. No, you know, just get some construction paper. And... All right, just make something that they're not going to like anyways. <laughs> All right, Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? President Trump will sit down with congressional leaders from both parties of the White House today as lawmakers enter the frantic final weeks of the year with a federal budget deadline looming December 8th. The Washington Post reports with military spending as a major point of debate. Defense, Defense Secretary James Mattis is expected to be at the meeting also. Democrats are, dog. Yeah, Democrats are attempting 
to use their leverage to protect the so-called dreamers or immigration Im- immigrants brought to the United States unlawfully as children. Party leaders are bracing for the unpredictable, and at, at the last such sit-down, Trump expe- unexpectedly sided with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. Remember we called it the Chuck and Nancy? They're all friends now. And he sided with them <laughs> over raising the debt ceiling, le- leaving members of his own party livid and shell-shocked. Really? Yeah, the Republican leadership walked out of the room like, what just happened? Well, I, isn't he, isn't he, he's on our side, right? Why did he decide with the Democrats? And he just, he, we went with Chuck and Nancy and walked out the door. Haven't you ever walked out of a meeting, though, with that exact same feeling? Like, what just happened? Yeah. So they're, they're bracing for anything today as they sit down in this meeting. Hmm. President Trump will not campaign for Alabama Republican Senate candidate Roy Moore before the state's general election. Uh, December 12th, a White House official said Trump has r- embraced the embattled candidate without mentioning his name, choosing instead to slam the Democratic <laughs> opponent, Doug Jones, as being weak. Moore stands accused of sexual misconduct from multiple women who said he pursued them uh, for relationships when they were only teenagers. The president has defended the Republican nominee by saying the allegations are decades old and emphasizing that Moore has totally denied the claims. Trump's support for Moore is in direct contrast with Republicans in Congress who have called on Moore to step aside and have accused, uh, I said his accusers are credible. Decades old allegations about a man who was decades older than the women he was pursuing. Right. Or even sometimes, women at sometimes at a local mall, apparently. Oh. Uh, after President Trump made a snide remark about Senator Elizabeth Warren during an event Monday honoring Native American code talkers who served in World War II, referring to her as Pocahontas, several Native American groups spoke out against his comment. The name becomes a derogatory racial reference when used as an insult. Dr. J.R. Norwood, the general secretary of the Alliance of Colonial Era Tribes, said in a statement, American Indian names, whether they be historic or contemporary, are not meant to be used as insults. To do so is reducing them to racial slurs. Russell Begay, president of the Navajo Nation, said that in this day and age, all tribal nations still battle insensitive references to our people. The prejudices that Native American people face is as un- uh, unfortunate historical legacy. Hmm. Here's a so question. you start lobbing names around. Go ahead. If he had known the name of literally any other Native American yeah. from history that right. wasn't portrayed in a Disney movie in the 90s, yeah. <laughs> would it be as much of an insult? I know. Sacagawea? Could be. See, that one. that one's a little bit more obscure. Not quite. Yeah. Hmm. He kind of went for the one that was on, you know, low-hanging fruit. Right. Of, okay, cool. And finally, <laughs> um, we're all hopefully, I mean, it's what? Tuesday? So it's several days after Thanksgiving? Mm-hmm. Is there still leftovers? Do you think people still have Thanksgiving leftovers around? Well, we were out of town, so there so are no leftovers. Any. So this article I found is from uh, the Daily Mail talking about what's the shelf life of each dish from Thanksgiving dinner? How long can you Ooh. keep that around before you probably need to get rid of it, right? When it starts to turn green, it's probably a good time to throw it out. That's a good, good, mm-hmm. that's nice. The color? So they're saying the turkey, right? The turkey can last yeah. for about two hours on the table before you probably need to not eat that anymore. When it's in the danger zone is what they refer to it as, the now, danger the, zone. There's, there's bacteria, it starts you yeah. know, accumulating. Uh, if it's refrigerated, it says it says a couple hours it'll begin to smell sour and develop a slimy texture if it's left just on the table. The turkey will. You just slather some gravy on that. It's not such so a big deal. So it says deal. to maximize the life of your leftovers, you pop it in the fridge within two hours of dinner. 
And so you could refrigerate the turkey, says, up to three days. It'll stay safe to eat and flavorsome for longer if you carve it up and store it in slices in shallow airtight containers or wrap lightly in aluminum foil. Only three days? That's what they're saying. Oh, no. Now, that, that refrigerated, and uh, then it goes on and talks about uh, frozen yeah, we've done frozen turkey. It says it could last for like three months before the flavor starts being affected. Ooh, we went way beyond that. <laughs> yeah, so that's what they're saying. I, it depends on what you uh, what you want to brave, I guess. Gravy. Trying to make all the pages here. It says on the dining room table two hours before it starts getting a little, little weird. Uh, health-wise, refrigerated one to two days, frozen two to three months. And then, uh, then you must reboil it before serving, type of thing to heat it up, of course. But so it just it comes to a point where like the taste starts going away. Gravy Cran- is one thing I really don't like to save. Cranberry sauce again, two hours on the table, uh, two weeks refrigerated, two months frozen. Brussels sprouts. They're saying who's it can having last- Brussels sprouts at Thanksgiving Brussels dinner? Brussels sprouts not applicable. Actually, never. <laughs> we you did. don't need to. Eat my them. wife, my wife took it one year, and it was. Uh, it was everyone loved it because it was wrapped in bacon, of course. But, oh yeah. Um, so they can last up to a year frozen. Oh, that's good to After know. After a year, the Brussels sprouts start losing their flavor. It's Some probably people because they qu- stay in the freezer yeah, longer no. than the turkey that you actually yeah, want to eat. Uh, pumpkin pie. How long do you think it can last on the table before it's? Uh, kinda... It doesn't last. Well, it doesn't. It's last. gone. But it's an egg-based dessert. Right. So they're saying about an hour before you've left it out too long. Yeah, it's never it's never around that long. Then they refrigerate it up to four days before it starts to taste sour and turn lumpy. And we all know it's most of the time it's not even pumpkin, it's squash. Who are these people that are letting this pumpkin pie just sit around? It should be in your belly. And it can last frozen and keep the taste up to one one and a half months. Wow. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe at that point you just you just buckle down and eat the pie. Yeah, you you soldier through it. Yeah, that's oh, what, what's wrong with people? <laughs> and then it talks about all these different pies, banana cream pies, and they all have different different uh, table versus fridge versus freezing because they're you know veg- as soon a, as you stick meringue on it, it's right. got a shorter shelf life. It's all different. Yep. If it has frosting, if it goes through, so I think the lesson of all this is just eat all the leftovers as quick as humanly possible. Also, the lesson in is one if they've lasted till now, yeah, probably too long. Probably, just bring them in. I'll eat them. Yeah, I didn't get any leftovers. You don't. You don't it's wait like fair. two or three days to decide what to do with that. You have like a turkey sandwich the next day. Another thing is, I don't know why there's this big hang-up about having turkey outside of Thanksgiving. Why can't we have it more frequently throughout the year? Well, the, mm. the top three days are Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter for turkey sales. <gasps> oh, so he's, I'm getting – I now I have permission to eat it on Easter. You can eat it I whenever want you want to. I want an excuse to eat it you, This is frequently. when you don't come – this is what happens when you don't come to work the week before Thanksgiving. You miss out on us talking about how stuffing and mashed potatoes and Thanksgiving Useless dinner statistics. things. Useless It's great. Deserve. See, they but, deserve more. A lot of times, finding a turkey other times of the year might be a little difficult if your grocer doesn't stock them. It's true. Maybe I just need to start raising them. I you, think that's what I'll do. You could do that and explain to your kids why Gertie the hey, they turkey wanna, is now gone. They but, want a pet. Yeah, but if you intend on eating the pet, that may be a discussion you may want to think about having. I'll just tell them they can never name it. Okay. Then it's okay. <laughs> 
Anyway, uh, when we return, we are going to be revisiting an interview that Dr. Matt did with Dr. Jonathan Schultz on overconfidence in career choice. Really interesting topic when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show. As a child, you may have known exactly what you wanted to be when you grew up. Options ranged from firefighter to doctor to artist. Then you hit college and real life settles in. You eventually choose a career, but how confident were you in your career choice? With statistics indicating that only 27% of college graduates get a job related to their major, it's easy to be uncertain. A few months back, Matt Townsend spoke to Dr. Jonathan Schultz, who is a research fellow in experimental economics at Yale, who conducted a study looking at overconfidence in career choice. Matt began the interview by asking Dr. Schultz why he studies confidence in career decisions. Well, actually, I remember a very specific event when I was uh, doing my Ph.D. in the very first week. I overheard a conversation of two first-year undergraduates, and they were talking about their starting salaries. And now they were talking about really, really high salaries, and I was just baffled by hearing that. And I was thinking, man, they really must be confident in, um, in themselves and in their choice, particularly because it was first-year undergraduates, so they had no information how good they will be doing. And, um, of course, they also had no information um, whether they will like um, the subject they're studying. Interesting. And and I guess in your study, what did you find out about this confidence level? It, does it make a big difference? Does it impact? Yeah, we found a huge difference between the field of studies. So we found that um, people studying um, disciplines which are related to business schools like economics, uh, business administration, law, or political science, that they score way higher on confidence than other academic disciplines, um, for example, natural science or um, hmm. chem- and I mean, on the least confident were actually humanities. Uh, they were scoring quite low. Now, wh- why? What is that from, Dr. Schultz? What, what do you attribute? Does the confidence create the choice? Or does the choice, you know, generate the confidence? I, I think that it's really the confidence which creates the choice. Interesting. The, the confidence, what we measured is confidence in own abilities. And uh, abilities we measured is, was a simple trivia quizzes. So we asked them, um, for example, do you remember the year that Elvis Presley was born? Or do you know the year the first flight of the Concorde Accord? No. And <laughs> And these are really simple questions, and all the students did equally well, and, uh, but they ranked themselves quite differently when it comes to ability. And since we did the study with first-year uh, students, um, it's, and they were not exposed very much to their major, it seems that it was really selection going on. So people huh. are quite confident in their ability. They uh, choose to go for the uh, field of studies, uh, which are related to business, I mean, these are also the fields of study which will pay later way higher amounts than other fields of studies like humanities. Hmm. And and I guess, too, there's also higher risk in business than there might be maybe in the sciences. 
I mean, it seems like a science uh, employment in the sciences might be a safer bet than an entrepreneur in a business. Well, it kind of depends, I guess. I mean, if you if you start if you want to become an entrepreneur, yes, it's more risky, and you need this confidence also to succeed as an entrepreneur. Hmm. There's right. lots of risk, so you need to be really confident in what you're doing. And of course, if you want to sell products and you want to start your own business in a market, you need to be confident in order to convince other people uh, that what you're doing is really good. That's but interesting. Course, if yeah. you're working in a bank, I think your employment should be uh, quite uh, certain. Certain is quite secure, right? Exactly. And do you um, – so, wow, this is some pretty interesting research because now – uh, all of a sudden, it might make more sense why some people in the humanities are in the humanities. Um, it, it just might. I mean, maybe. It, what do you What do you think needs to come out of this? Do we Do we need to be teaching confidence to kids in every area now to elevate them to certain levels of confidence? What What do you What do you suggest or see that uh, that's going to come out of the research? I think that's exactly, I mean, that's a very good point. I think it's very important to teach kids confidence already in high school so that they feel confident to really make a choice based more on their ability and interest than in their confidence. Hmm. Because, I mean, in the end, we want to have people who are enjoying what they're doing on the one hand and also the people who are really able to do the things um, they, they want to do later in life. And I mean, one thing which I did not mention yet is that and there's a large literature showing that there's huge different gender differences between uh, confidence. Mm. So males score way higher on confidence than females and of course this can explain why males select themselves into competitive environments and also get promoted more often and um, are more likely to be CEOs of companies. That's true too and um, I wonder too if that's the uh, I, I, did you check out? Is there in your sample size was there a disparity in were more females in the humanities and more males in the business areas? Exactly. I mean that's what we find. Yeah. We look at the entries uh, in in colleges um, in Europe, but I'm certain that it's very similar here in in the U.S. That more females select themselves into humanities while uh, the business careers. But also, often natural science are more the fields that uh, males mm. select themselves. Right. In fact, yeah. In fact, I just read another article about how it's a little harder to recruit uh, women into like the medical fields or the science fields uh, historically. Hmm. Exactly. I think confidence has yeah is a, is a very um, strong predictor of uh, factor explaining these differences. It's a really interesting concept, right? Because now. Their confidence is impacting their selection, and their selection will inevitably impact their income. Exactly, yeah. And and then they can they're they're elevated, I guess, or held or held back by it. What are there some cons to the overconfidence? Did you find any cons that uh, for people that were overconfident? Well, in in the economics literature, there's many phenomena which are um, explained by overconfidence, and they are actually phenomena which are, um, can be quite bad for society. I mean, one is, for example, value-destroying mergers. If you're a CEO and you think, well, I'm, I'm the best uh, CEO ever, um, I should take over all the other companies, and this is only driven by overconfidence, 
obviously value is destroyed. Or another example is excess entry into markets. So if you're an entrepreneur and you think um, you do it, you're way better than your competitors, you might enter into a market and actually go bankrupt. So there's this, uh, yeah, there's there strong phenomena which are uh, where confidence on an aggregate level is actually not very good. Hmm. It's, oh, oh, go ahead. Actually, I'm, I'm quite puzzled with overconfidence because if you think about this, people base their decisions on wrong presumptions. So you can think of um, just crossing the street, and if you think I'm super fast, you might cross the street, but the car was faster, and, and there's, a, there's a chance that you, you get into an accident. Hmm. Also, if you think about our evolutionary past, um, if you're very confident, you might think I can take on despair all by myself, but actually, I mean, there's a high risk of getting killed in this proceed. So I'm quite interested why people are overconfident in the first place. And I think it is a social signaling device. So I can signal that I'm very confident and people will follow me or people won't pick um, uh, a fight with me. I think that's, and that's obviously a trade-off. If you're a politician, it's very important to signal confidence but of course, if you overdo it, and then it's not credible anymore. People will not follow you or not. Yeah, and then they yeah they won't trust you. It's a it's an interesting concept too. Just as we're in the middle of this presidential election, that uh, the confidence or the business leaders and the politicians, which are pretty much make up our presidency, are, are those that are running for president. Um, uh, w- one of the ones that that uh, took a beating here was um, Ben Carson, who was a, a physician, and he seemed to be less confident. Obviously, wasn't. I mean, secure, confident individual, but people buy into a person's confidence, don't they? They actually, even if it's faux confidence, even if it's faking it. Absolutely, it, it's funny that you mentioned medicine because in our study we also find that people in medicine are actually not so confident in, in other disciplines. Hmm. Um, yeah, and, That's I mean, strange, isn't it? Because I, I always attributed a doctor to kind of the God theory where they had to at least act. I guess maybe that's what it is. They're acting like they know uh, so, yeah. to be confident so you believe it and let's go have that surgery now. Absolutely. I mean, you have to be confident to uh, exactly convince people that you can uh, perform surgeries and so on. Hmm. But that, but it was lower, and then the humanities, which would represent um, what fields? More like I guess uh, teachers, educators, uh, arts. Exactly, like English literature or yeah. Um, and and that's a weird concept too, because that, that's then you always hear on campuses. Well, there's those that do; those are the business people, politicians, and then there's those that don't do, but they teach. And yeah. You hear this weird uh, – so it's, there's a lot of just kind of um, rhetoric that also surrounds this in our own society. Yeah. I mean confidence also has an advantage and this is that you start projects um, because you feel confident. So it might be that you actually start very ambitious projects because of your confidence, which may be way too ambitious. But once you're stuck in this project – you might continue because you're stuck in this project. So it might help you to overcome um, some procrastination. And of course, um, if you're more confident, uh, if you're in the humanities and you seem not to be so confident, you might not 
be so ambitious in your later career as well, uh, driven by this confidence. Hmm. Interesting. And you're saying this confidence we're kind of bringing to the game, and this confidence is our, our confidence in our abilities. So those that have a higher confidence in their abilities are more likely to choose the business, the poli-sci kind of world, um, economics. Those that have a little lower level of confidence are more likely to choose a career in the humanities. And then I guess there's a direct correlation to incomes earned. Yeah, there's a very direct correlation. So if you're, um, so we had a Swiss sample, and there the difference between the business school related fields and um, engineering and medicine and the other fields, uh, it's about ten thousand dollars for the starting salary, but later I guess it will um, disperse more. Ten thousand dollars more for the yep. businesses over the sciences. Exactly. And then that that'll get oh, turn into a wider gap over time. Exactly. Wow. I mean, and it's and it's confidence. Um, I guess where in your in your project on the origins of overconfidence. I mean, I guess is that overconfidence? Um, it seems like if it's overconfidence, it would be detrimental to the effect to their success. Right. Um, so it's really. Well, Overconfidence would having be having too much confidence when you shouldn't. Exactly. So the way we set up our experiment was that we did these trivia quizzes and then we ranked people how good they were in answering these trivia quizzes. And in the second stage, we asked people to rank themselves in groups of in a group of twelve how good they would be. Hmm. And what we find is that people from the business school are consistently ranking themselves better than they are. So on average, they rank themselves one rank higher. Hmm. And we call this overconfidence. Interesting. Okay. They get money from us. So if if, yeah. they, if they would be exactly right, they would get the most money. So they have a financial incentive to be correct. Yeah. Did and somehow reassuring is that engineering and medicine, they're actually quite good on average in predicting how good they are. And actually that's reassuring because engineering and uh, natural science medicine, um, these are people who, who, um, who design nuclear power plants and so on. So it's reassuring that they mm. have a sense of how good they are in relation to that. And then the humanities, do they underrate how good they are? Exactly. So on average, they underrate themselves by about one rank. So they think that they're actually worse than, than they are. How interesting is that? And yet these people might also be the therapists of the world, the counselors, the, well, yeah, the school teachers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I think it's very important to already start in school um, to uh, boost people's confidence. Um, but on the other hand, there are studies showing that um, confidence is uh, largely uh, genetically inherited about 20 to 30 percent, and only 10 percent comes by the environment. Hmm. A large proportion of genetic inheritance. And then um, I guess, too, we need to boost confidence, but we also need to, it sounds like, with some of the uh, higher echelon, we probably need to improve self-awareness. Absolutely. It's, it's a very yeah, fragile balance. On the one hand, of course, if you have people working in, in the business, you want to have confident people uh, to boost your business, to, to sell products to people, and their confidence is certainly a, a trade which helps that. 
but at the same time, uh, you don't want to destroy value in a society by by having, let's say, a banking industry which is way too confident, going into too risky businesses, um, yeah, leading to bankruptcies and um, yeah, right. Because that was it. I mean, like with the economic collapse, everybody was following the leader who was confidently leading or met multiple leaders confidently leading and confidently making money. But nobody should have been that confident. Exactly. So some cautions in, in one's own ability in investing would have been uh, quite helpful there. Well, and maybe too, because um, maybe some of the scientists – that were maybe less confident. And I don't, I don't know, uh, I read in the book, um, Quiet, mm-hmm. um, they talk about uh, extroversion, introversion, but um, the extrovert might have been the manager pushing more and more financial whatever decisions. But, you know, a researcher behind the scenes that was introverted may have not been strong enough to go take on the confidence of the manager to give them enough data to say, no, this isn't working. I mean, that's one of the points she brings up in her book is at some point you need to have, you know, the quieter, less confidence that might have better data stand up and deliver. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And actually, extroversion and confidence, they're uh, quite correlated. So Hmm. people who are more extroverted, they're also more confident. Isn't that interesting? And then she, in her book, too, uh, talks about the fact that Harvard Business School, for example, is basically their requirements to get in is much more of an extroverted scale and cycle. So they're much more inclined to just bring extroverts in. So they're not just getting overconfidence. They're getting overconfident and extroverted. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. And, I mean, who would you hire? Someone who is very shy in the, the initial interview or is it someone right. who is very confident about his ability because um, there's asymmetric information. You don't know the, the person you're going to hire. So you want to hire the one who signals more confidence in what he's doing. So even so, he might not be so good. It still uh, probably makes sense from the point of view of the firm to hire the one who signals high confidence. Yeah. And we kind of have a bias towards that, I guess, right? So we're biased to trust the more confident person, even if they're less competent. Exactly. And what makes it um, also very interesting is that imagine a very confident person, he signals confidence, then he gets hired, that's boosting his confidence. Then he might uh, go into a some form of competition in for market shares, and just by his very confident presence, he might deter the other uh, person. And what we actually find in our own research is that deterring someone uh, from competition by signaling confidence, uh, people update this in the exactly same way as actually winning this competition. Hmm. So there's a value in confidence to t- deter other people from picking competitions, and this boosts confidence even more. So it seems like there's some form of an adaptive path boosting confidence. And, and uh, yeah, that's interesting, too, because there's still a hierarchy of confidence, I guess, on any team. Uh, you, you're still going to have some people that are, have even more confidence than you um, on the same team. Yeah. And then you might back down because they seemingly have so much more confidence. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, in these situations we encounter in, in many instances, it could just be a conference, and should I speak up now? Am I confident enough? 
or, or do, am I going to be quiet and mm. let the person speak? And of course, all these little things might build up to form a very confident character who has uh, spoken up many times and he got uh, positive feedback or build someone who's, who's rather shy, not speaking up, and then also not being able to boost confidence. So I think one way to, to boost confidence is really try to uh, speak up in, and also in situations where the, the, um, the feedback will likely be very positive. Yeah, so find, yeah, find a kind of a, a safer environment and, and speak up a lot there, practice exactly. there. Exactly. Because you really this is this does get into like whistleblower situations and why some people won't you know even step into situations where people need help because confidence might be low. Exactly, yeah, and that's uh, that would be very disastrous. Oh, what a fascinating study! And um, the, and the, this is all really you're saying much more of a genetic thing handed down. Is it evolutionary? I mean, it seems like. We would have been born to even fake confidence. I mean, it seems like even a lot of animals that are outnumbered might still continue to pretend to look confident. Yeah, I think it's a very good question. We we don't know yet. I mean, we we found in this one study found that genetics is a large part of it, and the question then becomes: overconfidence is a form of self-deception um, because I can just play to be confident, but what we find in, in our studies is that people are truly overconfident. So even if we give them money, they still uh, don't get the, the correct choice, so they mm-hmm. display overconfidence. And I think the self-deception is a very important part, because if you truly believe that you're very good, your body language, your voice, and everything signals that you're confident in what you're doing. And this is way more so when you truly believe um, deep inside that you're really good in in something or that you have a high ability in doing something. Yeah. Wow. And I think it's related to the animal world in some sense. If you have um, theories of costly signaling or or mating, so people, uh, animals display these... um, like birds uh, display colorful, um, um, yeah, like plumage, yeah, exactly. Just, uh, and I think it's very much related to to overconfidence. Does 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 this confidence change as we age? Does our wisdom temper our confidence? Do we does, do we become wiser, smarter? I really like this question, but. I, I don't have an answer. It's really interesting. I should look into that. Yeah, that seems fascinating. Like it seems like you'd become wiser and realize that sometimes it's better to not just be confident. It's sometimes yeah. it's better to be right. To be real, exactly realistic, and uh, well, it could be also be that. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Also, when you're younger, you might want to have high confidence to try out new things, to take risks you would not take without mm-hmm. being quite confident. And then um, to start a career, to start um, a new business. But once you're older, you might be not so wise to start risky businesses. And uh, Yeah, now you've got to conserve. Exactly. Which is maybe, yeah, maybe why we become conservative versus more yeah. liberal-minded. Yeah, 
as we age. Interesting stuff. Well, I appreciate the work. It's a it's a fascinating study. Um, and if going forward and in, in your future, Jonathan, what uh, what's what do you think is next? Where are you going to take the study now? Yeah, I'm really interested in these evolutionary origins and whether there's a genetic base, um, how self-deception and overconfidence relates and how you can, uh, whether this is a social signal deterring other people or um, taking other people along as a leader and Mm. probably do more research. Love that. Great stuff. Well, again, thank you very much, Dr. Jonathan Schultz, for your great work. Thank you very much for having me. You bet. Interesting stuff about confidence. Isn't that amazing? Who'd have thunk it? It's just kind of who you are. Even impacts who you, what jobs you choose, and how much money you're going to make. Um, and who would have thought that it was based on your field? You choose your field on your confidence level. Amazing stuff. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. about that time that we head on over and do some I usually I said head on over because I'm usually the one doing the MT head news. over to yourself head over to me to do some MT news and uh, we've got some good ones today this one's crazy there's this 33 year old Massachusetts woman and uh, she's being held without bail in Berkshire County after a series of alleged car thefts which appear on paper like an attempt at reenacting an unglamorous real-life version of Gone in 60 Seconds. you like that movie, Cole? The unglamorous version of an unglamorous movie. There you go. Police say Chandra Burrell of Adams stole four cars over the course of the day last week. She started the day stealing a Honda One Civic. One day. Yeah. That's right. Honda Civic. That's great. newsworthy. It's a good choice, Honda Civic. Then yeah, she stole— That'll normally last you a few years. Uh, yeah. It lasted her a couple hours. Yeah. Then she stole a Toyota Highlander, another one that's a good choice. It's one we wanted. Then she took a red Lexus and finished the day off with a BMW. So she She's moving progressively on got more expensive in her tastes. The police chased her in the BMW, and she took off at speeds over 100 miles per hour and ended up losing control of the car, according to the police. She didn't crash. But – and here's the other thing. She almost hit a flatbed wrecker that was just coming back from returning the Highlander she stole earlier in the day. <laughs> so she almost crashed into a car that she stole earlier. The spokesperson added the tow truck driver just hung around there and picked up the BMW after Burrell was once again arrested. He so he had his a money great worth day. day. Yeah, he had a fantastic day. So uh, – she ruined the day for others, but made the day of the tow truck driver. <clears throat> what a considerate lady. See, that you've always got to search for the silver lining in these stories. So, you know, she did her deed for the day in more, way than, in more ways than one. Uh, you, you mentioned this story earlier, Cole. Uh, if, you know, the, there's this guy that uh, couldn't remember where his car was, right? It's a problem that we all have. We try to use the... Uh, yeah, we try to use the little beeper on our on our uh, key fob to try to find the car, but he couldn't find it, right? So he calls 911 to report a fake carjacking, and uh, probably not the best idea. 
Uh, so what happens is he calls 911 to report the fake carjacking. And not only that, but a carjacking at Knife Point at a Walmart in Spanaway, Washington. Five county sheriff's deputies raced to the scene and found the victim, who it turns out wasn't really a victim, except of bad judgment. See what I did there? There was no carjacking. The man said he couldn't remember where he parked his car and figured deputies would get there faster if he said his car was hi- or carjacked. He even provided a fake description of an attacker to 911 dispatchers so it would sound more real, right? You got you to gotta sell it. Right. He did tell deputies he was really sorry he wasted their time. Deputies wasted no time in putting the man in handcuffs and drove him around the parking lot until the man found his Dodge Charger right where he had parked it. The man told deputies he always fears his car has been stolen. Hmm. So maybe I wonder if there are like some mental health issues there or paranoia issues. Basically, Hmm. he just called someone to try to find his car for him. That's true. That's true. And they did have more luck than he did. When will they ever learn? What's the silver lining there? Let's see. He, uh, well, he, maybe these cops were having a really boring day and he made it a little more exciting for them. Nothing is more exciting than driving around a parking lot looking for a car. Well, maybe they were stuck in the office. There there was this momentary excitement when they thought there was a carjacking at Knife Point. There's the silver lining for you, folks. Well, speaking of silver linings, um, this is this, I'm going to just abandon that transition right there. Uh, speaking of silver linings, we'll have a better segue <laughs> next hour. There we go. <laughs> when we talk to our good friend Leanna Tan, our wonderful producer, who's going to go on a little tangent for us that has to do with some weird diets when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. It's one of our favorite segments on the show here. It's Leanna Tan's Tangent, and this one's a live one. She's here to talk to us about some of the weirdest diets out there. I'm wondering if I'm on one right now. Leanna, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Great. So tell us. This is perfect timing because we just came back from Thanksgiving. We indulged heavily on foods that are probably not things we should be indulging in. Yeah, and you're probably wondering, how can I lose some holiday weight before Christmas? Yes! Don't worry, I have some really bizarre ways for you to do that. Okay. (laughs) I found this on Forbes.com, and some of these are crazy. So first one is cotton balls. Cotton balls? Yeah, so they they recommend eating cotton balls in an attempt to feel full and not overeat. Are there is there any danger in eating cotton balls? Yeah, um, most medical professionals say that you should eat other high fiber foods rather than cotton balls, or something that is actually a digestible a food. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're sure it's not cotton candy? It's cotton yeah. balls. Cotton balls. Oh, I'm pretty sure cotton candy yeah. is not what you should be eating. That's my diet. Okay. Um, this other one's really gross. So in the early 1920s, some people were selling instead of in supplements for diet pills, they sold tapeworms. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. People they, love that tapeworm ew, diet. Uh, stick to your intestines and just clear everything out. Mmm, yummy. I would rather take a little bit of fat. <laughs> uh, and the other one, I don't know if you've heard of this breath breatharianism. Have you heard of that? Oh, 
people swallowing? No, no. What? It's like it's almost like a religion. So instead of eating food and water, they believe it's unnecessary and they just survive off of spirituality and sunlight. It's kind of like photosynthesis. Or oh, photosynthesis, right? Yeah. I thought you were going to say like somebody has. Uh, like somebody does an intake of air, like yeah. like you're gonna burp, you know. <laughs> like, but instead of letting it out, you just keep it in. I used to do that when I was little, like swallow air and to get really? full. Yeah. And then I saw some <laughs> TV show and it was like they were doing surgery and I don't know. It, it stopped me from ever doing. That. They had to extract all the extra <laughs> yeah, air. Extra air from someone. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So wow. Are there were there any others? Yeah. Okay. So this one's called the Freegan Diet, and that's where you just Freegan dump- Diet. Yeah. <laughs> but it's all about free stuff. So you just dumpster dive and you eat secondhand food. Oh, that sounds yeah. delicious. <laughs> sounds disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> and this last one is called the Last Chance Diet, and this, some woman made this elixir, and it was made of a blend of pre-digested animal hides, tendons, and slaughterhouse byproducts combined with sweeteners and artificial flavors. And then people died, so the FDA finally stepped in. <laughs> really? See, mm. wow. So I... Just take the holiday weight. That's my point. Yeah, just weight. accept the fact that you're probably going to put on a couple of pounds yeah. from all the pumpkin pie and the eggnog exactly. and all that and just enjoy yourselves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then just show some self-control after the fact, right? Right. I don't know. I might start swallowing some more air. Yeah, Okay, you try that. Let me okay. know how it goes. I'll be eating turkey and ham. <laughs> that or the tapeworm. That's That'll be my, my backup. Leanna Tan, thanks so much for going on that little tangent with us. And uh, when we return, speaking of tangents, we're going to take a tangent from the Matt Townsend Show as we head over to BBC News. That's up next. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is hour number three. I'm Jeff Simpson uh, filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away. We're here with Terry South, our wonderful producer, and Cole Wissinger running the board. And uh, he's also our color commentator. If I can throw in a sports term there. Why is it a color commentator? They provide the color. Like the color of the... black and white palette. Is it... Are they... Is it because the jerseys are different colors? No, yeah, they I'm describe sure they describe what's going on, giving you the color of the situation, the the you know the details. Hmm. I don't like it. Where the play by play guy <laughs> just sort of tells you you know the movement, the color guy tells you what they did. Ah, see the describing commentator. Yeah, he's usually the guy that talks too long, and then the play by play guy cuts him off because the game continued. Oh, until they get a rhythm, and then they the, the other guy knows when to be quiet. So the play-by-play is not the guy that is, like, drawing out a grid and everything and circling. Sometimes. Okay. But most of the time, no. Most of the time, that's – because usually the, the, the color commentator is a former player, a coach, someone of that nature that has more in-depth knowledge. Whereas sure. the, the person that's calling the game is telling you down a distance or, you know, was that a foul or, you know, whatever. Those types of things. Giving you those sort of, of functional details of the game. The other guy's giving you more the nuance of the game. So the – the okay, so the color commentator is the Wikipedia of football. Because when I watch Possibly, a movie, yeah. I'll, I'll go to Wikipedia after the fact to mm. to kind of find out more about the movie, the making of, you know, who right. was previously cast in that role. Yeah, interesting. Who okay. got hurt during filming? That kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. 
what controversy surrounded the marketing and all that. Yeah. Good stuff. Anyway, shows you how little I know about football. Or TV. What? Because hmm? it's not just football. It's baseball, which you profess to be a fan of. I wouldn't call them color commentators. That's what they do. Because I'm, I'm colorblind. They always have the former pitcher or whoever in there to tell you what's going on. Yeah, I don't usually listen to them, though. Okay, well, same. Hmm. No much right. of a fan, then. I'm just, you know. Wow. Wow. <laughs> but <sighs> granted, you do go to the baseball stadium. But I you're, do. I'm you're, a real fan. Well, and I don't even live in the state. It, the the way you talk about it, it's not much about the actual game. It's more about the food and the crowd, not necessarily what's happening on the field. So your fandom is of different things involving the event. Okay, I know I go. talk about the food, but I should sure. bring up the. I'm I'm also an advocate of watching the game very closely hmm. because I don't want to get hit in the face with a baseball. Well, there's that, but. Just saying. Hmm. You're more interested in the nachos. The nachos. It sounded like then rather than the possible playoff push of your favorite baseball team. The nachos are the highlight of any situation. <laughs> I'm telling you. Okay. Anyway, uh, this is something that's been on my mind a lot, and I'm glad that we're going to be revisiting this interview that Dr. Matt did with Arlene Pelicane. Uh, five ways to become a more positive, purposeful parent. I'm sure you've had times as a parent where you felt like, why am I making such a big deal of something that really isn't that important? Yes. You know, like we talked about the seatbelts the other day, mm-hmm. where, whereas when we were growing up well, and going on road trips. seatbelts important, though. No, exactly. You're just saying that back in the day they didn't have safety regulations. Now they do, and you're like, does it matter? And it's like, well, if you want your kid to stay in the car – but if you're, in do- an accident, you're on this, yes, you do. You're on a road trip. Your daughter right. needs to get out of her seatbelt for just a couple of seconds to try yeah. to reach something. No big deal, right? And in our minds, we're thinking, "No, don't get out of that seatbelt. You can't get that. Yeah. I'll just pull over, or just we'll wait until we fill up for gas." But um, or things at home, you know, where they they ask us for permission to do something, and we say no. Do or, they go, "Daddy, can I play with these knives?" And you're like, "Yeah, sure, go yeah. ahead. I played with knives as a kid. You're fine." Or they're doing something like they're blowing bubbles in their milk, you know? Yeah. Not a big deal. No. So. Unless you have to clean it up, then. Well, yeah. Then you're crying over spilled milk. Ooh, touche. Um, So what what can we do to be a more positive parent? And so we'll we'll visit that here in a a second. A lot of this interview is about picking your battles. That is great. I'm so excited. There's some places that you can let your kid do that. Other places, well, yeah, you need to be firm and say, no, we don't do that here. Does uh, encourage your child to do things, <laughs> you know, maybe let, I think the the other side of it is people try to structure their kids' entire lives. Yeah. Give them time to have some freedom up to themselves to do things. Mm-hmm. Does picking your battles also entail uh, just saying, just go ask your mom, whatever your mom says. Well, that's how I choose to <laughs> participate. I, even when she's gone, I go, oh, I'll have to wait till mom gets home. Yeah. Well, for people like me where uh, the wife is is the boss cuz she's a stay-at-home mom. Right. Really, she gets the she gets the say. Because I'm not the one that's that's having to feed these kids and get them ready to go to school and helping them with their homework, although I should probably help out with that. Yeah, probably. She gets the most say. Yeah. And I think that's fair. That's fine with me. Right. So I just defer to her judgment cuz it's usually I just better. Defer by default. <laughs> my yesterday we uh, my dentist office called. 
Yeah. And I said, hey, uh, we have a dentist appointment for you tomorrow afternoon. I went, you do? Uh, here, call this number. Call. <laughs> so they <laughs> called my wife and she texted me back and said, we're going to see the dentist tomorrow. That's a good point. See? The dentist appointment is something that always takes me by surprise. Even though I'm the one filling out that reminder card that they have you fill out at mm-hmm. the, the dentist's office, my wife always knows about those types of things weeks in advance. Right. And I was like, we're doing what? Because I have uh, several things going on today. And she's like, yeah, right about this time, right in the middle of everything, we're going to try to go to the dentist. So really, I just have no memory of things that I did days ago or things that are coming days in advance. So you need to be a more purposeful parent. Yeah. I just need to do – I guess maybe I need to do things more to stimulate my brain. Sure. Maybe the Netflix is not helping. No. Anyway, let's uh, head over to Terry South, who's hopefully going to give us some news that can help us. Terry, what's going on? Republican leaders hustling to win over a handful of GOP senators who have suggested or have said they would not vote for this this week on the GOP's top priority tax overhaul if their various concerns aren't met and most likely changes will benefit wealthy Americans already the biggest winners in the legislation, according to the official congressional analysis. Republicans can't lose more than two votes. The only two Republicans who have said they will vote no if the bill doesn't change, Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, Senator Steve Daines of Montana, want more generous cuts for pass-through entities, a broad category of businesses where income is taxed at individual rates, not the corporate rate. More Uh small-ish businesses, family-owned businesses, those types of things. Johnson sits on the Senate Finance Committee, and if he votes no in committee on Tuesday, the bill will not advance without a procedural tra- uh, change in that. So it's a bunch of stuff. Basically, these two guys, and if anybody else jumps on board with the no, then the thing stalls out until mm. they can figure out how to change those no's to yes's. And so sometimes they need that, this. Sometimes that won't work. The Republicans need this. And if you remember back to the health care debates, John McCain walks into the Senate chamber at the end and gives the thumb down and just kind of kills the whole thing. And that was because <laughs> they didn't go through regular procedure. Which is, let's have committee hearings, let's have public hearings, let's talk about this, let's decide what the best path is forward in the regular way that we do business in the Senate. And again, they're not doing that this time. Yeah. So as John McCain, as he gave, remember he, he announced he had his tumor, went away for a while, came back, voted, had a, a big speech on the Senate floor talking about we need to get back to regular order and doing things as the Senate should be and do the, the best part for America. If all that is still the same for him... Is he a no vote? I don't yeah. know. Can he have all that and even his, you know, the no vote on health care and then vote yes for taxes when it's kind of the similar conflict if his argument is still the same? The yeah. conflict should still be the same. They haven't gone through regular order. You know, and say what you will about John McCain or any of these issues, but that's that would be kind of a cool feeling to know that you could just walk into a room, throw your thumb down, drop the mic, walk yeah. out, and you've changed it. That's crazy. It's like he's an emperor or something. A lot of influence there. Ticked a lot of people off. (laughs) (laughs) A lawyer for the National Security Advisor, uh, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, reportedly met with investigators on special counsel Robert Mueller's team on Monday, throwing kerosene into a smoldering speculation that Flynn is looking for a plea deal. Mm. This out of ABC News. On Thanksgiving, the New York Times reported that Flynn, his lawyer, had stopped discussing the special counsel's investigation with the White House 
The Times noted that it is, un- it is unethical for lo- lawyers to work together when one client is cooperating with prosecutors and another is still under investigation. ABC News casts these developments as potential evidence that Flynn is preparing to negotiate with prosecutors over a deal that could include his testimony against the president or senior White House officials. Aha! Or this could be absolutely nothing. <laughs> wow. That's how this all works. Uh, White House staffers could soon have nothing to do in their downtime at work or during their boring meetings. That's because the 18 acres of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue might become a no-go zone for personal cell phones. Really? This is a report out of uh, Bloomberg Politics. White House provided uh, phones can't send text messages, so employees would be unable to be easily reached by their family members during the day, critics say. The White House wireless network also means they can't access Gmail or Google Hangouts while on the uh, grounds either. The potential change is reportedly due to a cybersecurity concerns, although many people are skeptical. Still, one person who discussed the proposal with Bloomberg insists that the potential changes isn't they aren't connected to uh, concerns about unauthorized disclosure to news organizations. Remember, there was a yeah. a problem they had with leaks, and so they mm-hmm. had everyone bring in their cell phones, and they checked them to see if they were communicating with reporters, where all the leaks coming from. That's not the concern. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Chief of Staff John Kelly, his personal cell phone was reportedly compromised. Ooh. Right? Uh-oh. So they found it a few weeks ago, but he was compromised. This was in October, but they said he was compromised in June. Oh, wow. Right? So there were several Way months back, where yeah. he's walking around with a phone that somebody outside the White House apparently had access to. So they're concerned about these devices not being secure, and you're in a building that kind of needs to be secure, the White House. Maybe they just don't want anybody doing all this Black Friday shopping. Well, maybe that's it, too. <laughs> Let's get some work done. Wow. Hmm. What do you th- how would that affect your job here? Would that send you in a frenzy? Because you're, I mean, you're constantly on your phone. You're constant, constantly well, getting news updates. Yeah, just I don't know. Like, like we we got a news update just a little while ago. Let me pull it up here. It's, oh, it's, you were excited about it's, this. It's huge news. Yeah, Prince uh, Harry and Meghan Merk- Markle will wed in May at Windsor Castle. Right, so huge news as I get my updates from the Associated Press here, telling me that there will be a royal wedding in May. My wife will be so excited to hear that. Yeah, so are a lot of other people. Anything royal related? I mean, we didn't even talk about it yesterday, right? But mm, it, it was out yeah, there. Yeah. And um, I, I guess it was a slowish sort of news day as all the news networks led with it on their, their evening news. Well, coming there's back a royal from Thanksgiving, wedding. there probably wasn't much going on. I'm just like, oh, seriously? Yeah. <laughs> it was just, yep. it, I rolled my eyes and fast forward to another story because people getting married, <laughs> great. It's wonderful. Um now, do you fiddle with your phone? Uh, like, do you find yourself looking at it for no reason? There's just moments where you just grab your phone. And you're like, what am I looking at this for? You put I it look away at or... it for no reason. I, I'm not somebody that will like spin it around, or I don't have one of those little holders on the back. Okay. I, okay, I will say. So I've got one of these uh, credit yeah, but, card holders yeah, on the it's back. Like, it's like that, a wallet on the back of your yeah, phone. Yeah, you can pull it out with this red tab. I I'll do that. That's play with probably that? the only thing that I play with on my phone. There are times. Do you, you ever get like the phantom? buzz like you oh maybe i got an email so you go look at it every day okay every day and sometimes i get the phantom buzz and i realize the phone's not even in my pocket it's somewhere in uh, somewhere else in the house i know for the holidays people will uh uh you walk in the house they have a basket Mm -hmm. all the phones go in there because we're going to talk we're going to play games we're going to be that's a a great idea yeah after about five minutes, you start seeing the people climbing the walls because they don't have their phone. They got to check it. They got to fiddle. They got to look at something. And um, someone may have 
created a solution to that problem. Okay. They call it a substitute phone. Uh-oh. Yeah. Austra- Austrian uh, designer Clemens Schrlinger created the substitute phone as a way to help smartphone addicts cope in its absence. So this is like the nicotine patch, but for, for phone, cell phone right? users. So the designer says that more and more phones are becoming an addicting object in our lives. Users constantly play with them, even if they're not looking for a message or expecting a call. And he was inspired to design a tool that would stop this checking behavior. Hmm. So he designed five uh, facsimile phones made of black plastic with stone beads embedded in the surface which allows a user to replicate familiar actions such as scrolling, pinching, swiping. The goal is that it could be used as a coping mechanism for someone trying to check their phone less often. And so it's a black slab. Oh, boy. And you got some uh, wooden beads or plastic beads that are embedded, and you can roll the beads, right? So it's like a fidget fiddle object or something. And so they're, 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 <sighs> they're placed kind of low on the phone slab looking device so that you can play like you're unlocking your phone or rolling or scrolling (laughs) and it's a way to have that sort of feeling that you're using the phone without actually using your phone man can't we just wean ourselves of this need to fidget with something well that's what he's saying that this would help you because you're not actually getting anything out of that except the tactile feel of the device and then the motion of your thumb but there's no like end result of it because there's nothing coming out of this. It's not a phone. So you know you have a problem when you think that it's weird whenever you decide to take 10 minutes to just sit and think or sit and meditate. Right. You know, like if that – if it, if you notice that that's weird that you're just sitting there not doing anything, I think you might have a problem. Yeah. I try to do that every once in a while, not frequently enough. Yeah. And there is that, there, there is that slight feeling of – How long do I have to do this for? Right. See, and I try to avoid that. Because I'm there, I'm just like, what am I doing? And then I look up on my phone or, you know, do something else. Usually, like, when I'm on, like, an exercise bike or a rowing machine, you're about five minutes into that. You're like, how long do I – I got to sit here for 10 more minutes? What am I going to do for 10 minutes? There there are times when I'm on my way home and I I think, okay, what am I listening to on the way home today? And Hmm. I'll think – how about nothing today? No, can't do that. <laughs> Alone with my thoughts, not the. Well, thank goodness. Not where I need to be. Do you think this would work? We now though? have a, a phone spinner, phone fidget spinner. Do you think a phone, a plastic slab of plastic? Oh, I think I think people will work. certainly go for it, for a time, hmm. maybe for a time. Do you think it's better just to go cold turkey and just no phone whatsoever, just put it away, turn it off? The answer is an overwhelming yes. Okay. I think anybody could agree with that. But I mean, do you think I, that's practical? Do you think people would actually do that? It's practical, and I'll tell you why. There was a time when we didn't have them at all, and we got along just fine. I don't think there were times— The dark ages, uh, Like, before yes. we had these cell phones, hmm. I don't remember sitting around thinking, oh, when, are we, when am I going to have the ability to have a phone on me constantly? Hmm. I never had those thoughts. So, of course, we can get by without our phones. We've done it before. Hmm. I don't want to, though. <laughs> that's another – that's a different discussion, I guess. We're, we're in a place now where we don't have to do that anymore. It's true. You can do this other thing which is more interesting. But, I mean, it's it's the same principle with I anything, can, really. I can throw birds at pigs. 
It's fine. You can do that. True. There's like multiple versions of that. You can do that with. It's it's the same principle for anything. It's like the internet. There are a lot of good things that you can do with the internet. There are right. a lot of bad things you can do with the internet. Same thing with your phone. Our phone can help us do these amazing things that can help us be more efficient, but we can take it to an extreme. Anything that's taken to an extreme is not good. Mm. I don't know. You don't agree with it in terms of phone usage. If it takes – like my, my <laughs> wife wants me to do a uh, – what does she call it? Just a phone-free weekend. Okay. I, I, and I look at her like she's insane. I'm like, what are you talking about? Just put the thing away for the entire weekend? Yeah. She's like, well, yeah. I'm like, I don't want to. I'm going to try that. This weekend I'm going to try that and I'll I'll know what the color of my kid's eyes are. I'll know – I'll notice that, oh, you're getting some more freckles on your face. Mm. I'll know that their favorite TV show is uh, True or uh, what's the other one? Paw Patrol and PJ Masks. Mm. I'm going to find out some interesting things about them this weekend. You think so? Yeah. I think you're going to be thinking about so, your phone. <laughs> so you you keep us updated on the royal wedding. I won't, but okay. I'll tell you a few things that I learned about my daughters and my son. All right. All right? We'll see what happens. It's we'll, a deal. We'll compare notes when we get back. Okay. And speaking of uh, when we get back, we're going to visit revisit that interview that we teased earlier that Dr. Matt Townsend had with Arlene Pellicane, five ways to become a more positive, purposeful parent. And I've just identified one way right there that I'm going to do it. Put away my phone, pay attention to my kids, be a better dad. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Being a good parent can be tough. Arlene Pellicane, author of five books, including 31 Days to Becoming a Happy Mom, joined Matt Townsend a few months back to teach us five ways we can become more positive, purposeful parents. Matt began the interview saying that many parents don't feel they're doing a good enough job raising their kids. Cole, I'm curious to know, what would you do if you were locked in a Walmart? What are some, what activities would you engage in? What items would you take a look at? So I would just go over to the video game sampling area okay, and do what I would do on any other night and play video games until I <laughs> fall asleep. All right. Maybe I grab mean, some Gatorade and Cheetos, right? Because you got to have some gamer fuel. Okay. And then just plop. Oh, grab a giant beanbag chair. Walmart does have all this stuff. So, okay. So I go over to the giant beanbag chair area and grab a giant beanbag chair. Plop it right in front of the large TV displays where they have it plugged into all the different video game consoles. Go over to food, get Cheetos and Gatorade. Okay. I'm set A winning for the night. combination. Yes. Wow. Well, this guy clearly had some ulterior motives other than just, you know, having a good time in Walmart. You know, because if you're being locked in Walmart, it's probably by choice. There's a homeless guy in New Mexico who managed to get himself locked inside a Walmart overnight, and he's being accused of consuming and damaging merchandise. Which is also probably what I was explaining but, doing in my scenario. But I'm going to get to the items here in a second, and it's going to make you wonder why he did this. So okay. his name's George Suckow, 37, hid in a bathroom until Walmart employees had left and locked up the store early Friday. Spent the night eating chocolate and drinking soda. Okay, so so, kind of along the lines of what you said already. Uh, He then headed to the baby supply aisle where he opened baby diapers, baby wipes, a pacifier, and a bottle. Right. Also logical steps for 
a 37-year-old man that's locked in Walmart. Yeah. So uh, his movements triggered an alarm and he was found in, hiding out in the bathroom. He Again. Was, yeah. Go hide in the bathroom, right? Mm-hmm. I would go hide in the camouflage section. Uh, he was charged with commercial burglary and he's accused of damaging $156 in merchandise. So uh, this says the investigation caused nearby stores to have delayed openings for Black Friday. So I have two mm. questions. First of all, why the baby items? Okay. That's his business. That's the first question. Doesn't say whether he was trying the diapers on, but I doubt they would fit. Um, and then the second question is, have you ever known a Walmart to, to close? close? That was where I was at. I mean, I have with my friends spent multiple hours when I was in high school, spent multiple hours in our 24 seven. But I come from a very small town in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and our Walmart's open 24 seven. So they were preparing for Black Friday. OK, but still, yeah, I guess you're probably not going to have too many people in the store when they know that in just a few hours there's going to be these insane sales. Maybe he's anti Black Friday and was just doing it to delay Black Friday. No matter how you slice it, there's something it's the weird going on. the one time a year that Walmart does close and he managed to get in there. That wasn't happenstance, right? Weird. Weird. It doesn't say like he tried to shove them down his pants and make off with them. He just opened them. Interesting. Just some normal run-of-the-mill vandalism. I would say that, you know, maybe more uh, information will come out of this investigation, but I'm doubting that we're going to revisit this story. Anyway, the, the people sil- need to know, Jeff. The silver lining here is uh, – Cole, what do you got on this? <laughs> um, he got a jump on his Black Friday shopping. There you go. Silver lining. Boom. Nailed it. All right. When we return, we're going to be speaking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation, and I'm going to get their take on what we can do to hide these purchases from our significant others slash kids so that we can have some surprises this Christmas. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. And it's my privilege to head on over to BYU Sports Nation now and talk to our good friends, Jerem Jordan and Jason Shepard. How are you, fellas? It's the three J's. That's right. Oh, nice. J-Cubed. J- Anyone could ever have. J-Cubed. We've got to figure out some way to, to do a J and a three using our hands. We'll just flash I'll it. work on the J. When, you guys work on the three. Whenever we run into each other, we just do the J-3 sign. And we do it without... Like, all of a sudden, there's the signal, and then we do the J3. Yeah. They'll probably just walk yeah. away thinking, do you guys have arthritis or something? Like, no, Team BYU Radio. <laughs> get out of here. So uh, we've got to get more info on uh, somebody that's being relieved of their duties on the offensive side of BYU football. Ty Detmer, the wow. Heisman Trophy winner, uh, no longer the winner at uh, BYU. So today on the show, we're going to talk about your reaction, uh, is this the right move? Who's in the mix to replace him? We will discuss all things, Blaine Fowler included. Wow. Ooh. Not in the discussion to be, though. See, he'll join us to discuss, Tidemer. And since this is BYU, you know, they don't they don't like to fire people, but maybe they'll move them around to a different position? Well, I mean, it, it's a possibility. 
he was relieved of his duties as offensive coordinator, but he's still on staff. All You're of right. the yeah. the coaches are still under contract. So basically, what's going to happen is whoever the uh, the head coach Kalani Satake hires as the new offensive coordinator, he will then decide on who stays and who goes. Mm. If if he wants, if he says, you know what, that person's a nice fit with what I want to do, then maybe I'll ask him to stay if they want to go in a different direction. It sounds like whoever the new OC is, uh, he will be the one making those decisions based off of kind of the scheme he wants. But how awkward would that be? Oh yeah, coming you know to work. I mean? Let's let's be <laughs> let's be frank here. That would be really awkward. But I. Part of me thinks it'd be cool to keep Ty as QB coach. There's this separation. There needs to be a separation between Ty as a player and Ty as a coach. And if you don't separate it, then it's going to be even weirder, right? Sure. Um, he was a tremendous player. One of the I, I've dubbed him one of the princes of pro- the four and nine season. I know what you mean. I mean, I see I see George Clooney movies, and I think this guy's a really good actor. And then he directs a movie, and it's like. Uh, maybe there's, just go back to the acting. There's a difference. There really is. <laughs> yeah. Like, to Ty the player was not uh, let go yesterday. Ty the coach was. Yeah. Wow. Ty well, the it, player will always be here. Yeah. It, it, it stinks, though. That, I mean, because you want, especially a guy, and I know you want to separate the two. I'm having a harder time separating the two because sure. I still, like, a guy like that, you want to have you want him to be successful. So the yeah, absolutely. that yeah. it just didn't happen. That's what stinks it is that stink. it's Ty Detmer that wasn't successful. That that's that's the hard part. Can you imagine Jimmer being an assistant coach on the basketball team and getting let go? It'd mm. just be weird, right? Yeah, it's, it's just like, yeah. It's yeah, like right. Billy Bean. We you know, we watched at our retreat, we watched that movie Moneyball. Mm-hmm. He had a lot of potential and didn't do so well in the majors, but then, you know, really excelled when it came to managing. So yeah, it's kind it, of the same. Yeah, flip flop for um, yes. yeah, Ty in this case. So, so the question now becomes one of them, <gasps> that we're oh, aware. Come of, on, that we're aware of. <laughs> All right. Uh, any other names that you're not going to mention? Matt is always enlisting. He's always making himself available for this type of work. I don't know. Yes. Maybe, is Matt like interviewing for the job today? Is that where he's at? I want to. I want to know the worst candidate that applies. <laughs> like I would. I would love to know. Well, that would like, be that would be so and so. One of us, the, if we ever apply, so and so works at uh, whatever local business and uh, wants to be the OC. I played uh, high school ball. Because see, a lot of times, like some of these bigger <laughs> schools, when they have people sign or send in applications, some of those leak, and it's like you know the plumber from down the road. Like it's <laughs> that's legit. That legitimately happens sometimes for these openings. Do you think I'd be qualified if I could memorize some rousing speech from a sports movie and even take on the character and just be like, "You gotta get back out there, and you gotta give it hundred and fifty percent." Someone yesterday tweeted. <laughs> Aaron Eckhart should be the OC, and they, he's been a football coach <laughs> right, in a couple yeah, of movies. Yeah. He's a BYU grad. I was like, that's funny. That's really funny. <laughs> well, it sounds like a great show. It sounds like you've, it's, they've got an interesting uh, problem on their hands, but I'm sure they'll get it all figured out as we look forward to 2018. It's all going to come together. Yeah, they'll figure it out. And Elijah Bryant will join us as well, the leading scorer on the BYU basketball team. All right. Well, that's just coming up here in three minutes and 10 seconds on BYU Sports Nation. Until then, as you know, we like to do every day on the Matt Townsend Show, we like to share with you our hero story of the day. And this one takes place in South Carolina, where a highway patrolman is being hailed as a hero for saving a baby's life during a traffic stop. 
26-year-old SCHP trooper, first-class Benjamin Crocker, was in the right place at the right time in North North Charleston. A vehicle came up behind my car, which normally doesn't happen. It kind of got my attention, he explains. He went to see what the problem was and found that a three-month-old was in trouble. She started screaming, my baby, my baby, he's not breathing. So at that point, I just went into action, Crocker says. Crocker's National Guard and trooper training was put to the test. He was able to lay the baby flat on the back seat, open his mouth to check his airway and rub his sternum. Once he started crying, I knew he was breathing at that point, Crocker explains. He stayed to comfort the baby until EMS arrived. And uh, Crocker, uh, Highway Patrolman Crocker is our hero of the day. That's going to do it for the Matt Townsend Show today. Until tomorrow, we'll be back tomorrow to uh, have more ideas, more solutions to help you live a better and more informed life here on the Matt Townsend Show.